I'm not supposed to be where I am technically on, on paper. I'm not supposed to be around specific tables because I guess if you look at the, the boxes and, and, and how people are sort of managed in schools and they look at our people on school free school meals and people premium and essay, all these sort of tick box things that indicators that say actually this is how well a child should be able to do or doesn't do. Before we get into today's episode, we have a word from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help unlock their growth through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements. We create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out of the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. On today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to an ex-football player. She's played with Spurs, we're going to talk about that. She played for the Gunners. <laughs> she's played for Chelsea and so many other teams. She's won the FA Cup. She's won the Premier League. She's won championships in America. And then, you know, not, not happy just conquering, you know, the, the football world. She's like, you know what, let me, let me step into education. And she's going to do that in an absolutely remarkable way. Winning awards as a Teacher of the Year, School of the Year, selected as one of the, the top 50 in the world. You know... And then she's also a local councillor. She's been recently been appointed to as a non-exec to the FA Women's Board. And she does an outstanding amount of charity work. She raised over 100k for Grenfell. And in fact, it was the charity work that she was doing as part of her ESP organisation that we're going to talk about. It's how I came across. Ethel Pond, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and for such a great introduction. Really appreciate it. You, you never really realise how much you're doing until someone starts reeling it off and you're like, oh my gosh, where have I found the time to do all that? But, <laughs> but we move, we, we get it done for sure. Nah, for real, you get, you get it done. Like, you get it done. And not only do you get it done, you get it done at such a excellent level that it's so great to see. And it's um, really, really encouraging, to be honest, because like I said, the, the work that you're doing is so needed on so many levels. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the, the type of work that I do, and I guess what drives me, I don't really do things that like I just want to do. I tend to do things that where there's a need and the ability to, I guess, support and, and help others. And I guess that's what, what drives me and why there's always something else to do, because I'm doing things that's needed rather than things that... I just, I guess, want to do sporadically. So yeah, it's great to see that I have the ability to support even in, in such a, a small way and it makes such a big difference, which is important. For real. Let's go back a bit to, to football. How did you get into football? I actually kind of forced my way into football, actually. So uh, in primary school, around about the age of nine, the boys were, were playing football and I come from quite a large family, so I'm one of eight. 
So no is not really a, a thing for us. So I, I wanted to play at, at break time and they said no and they wouldn't let me play. So I literally just stood in the middle of the pitch and disrupted the game for everyone. So I was playing for both teams and <laughs> picking the ball out and the boys were getting super, super frustrated. And actually one of our learning support uh, mentors, a guy called Sydney Lawrence, kind of was done the negotiating and was like, okay, she wants to play. Like you can't stop her from playing. Like what can we do? So they ended up saying that I can be in goal. I didn't want to be a goal, but I guess it was more than nothing. I, it meant I was on the pitch and I felt as if I'd, I'd won and I'd gained some success. So I went in goal and I'm not going to lie, they blasted that ball so hard, literally like to, to make me not want to play. I mean, <laughs> the like point. Yards out. <laughs> they were like toe punting it. And I guess it was just the resilience in me to just kind of persevere and stay in goal. And I guess over a period of time, I got really good in goal and then the boys couldn't score. So then all of a sudden they were like, come on pitch, come on pitch, come out of the goal. So it's like I got really good at playing in goal and then I went out on pitch and then I guess I had to relearn again and get good at that. So I guess that's just how I forced my way in. And then I guess I just played for boys teams up until the age of, I guess, around 14 I continued playing in and out of boys team as well as when I signed for Arsenal at 12 and into the girls league. So yes, that's how I really just transitioned into what it is that I did. Playing for boys team at that time wasn't heard of. Did you find it hard? Well, not really unheard of. There wasn't much girls football around. So actually that was the norm actually. So if you wanted to play with the boys, so at the age of 12, I was playing with like under 18 boys, like men, under 23s, like because obviously... I wanted to play all the time and that's what was available. So I literally go uh, to my football team and I'd stay there for my under 12s and then I'd stay for the next session, which was on the 14s and 16s and 18s. I just love playing football. So I ended up playing for the men's team. So by the time I transitioned into the women's game, actually I'd been playing with men for years. So it was literally like a breeze. I was like, oh, this is quite easy because I'm used to playing with like big men. And now the girls are kind of a little bit more, I guess, flimsy in a sense and I'm like really like I know when I'm going in for a tackle I've got to go in hard because they're coming in hard when it's with the men so I'm doing the same on the women's side and it's just really a doddle so I'm like oh my gosh like this is a breeze so yeah I guess that's how I accelerated quite quickly in the women's game because I'd already been playing with men from primary school so by the time I was old enough to play in actually a women's fixture from just over 14 then it was quite easy to fit in with the women because I'd been playing with men for so long. So you were there at like the inception of the Women's Super League? Yes, I was. And as you see, it's a great transition. Obviously, everyone was really excited about it starting. And I guess I'd just come back from America at that point. And I guess there was a great buzz. And, and it's great to see the transition that it's made, the sort of sponsorship that's come in now. I guess maybe I was born about 15 years too early, it looks like, and I've just missed the boat in that sense. But actually, I guess it, we're a generation of footballers who, as I said, grew up playing a lot tougher against the men and stuff like that. And a lot of the girls played with boys. So it's a, a different type of football. And I guess we, in essence, even possess something quite unique that I guess the girls that, in my opinion, when I watched, don't necessarily have in regards to that sort of grit but maybe because they they haven't had to have that. They've always played against a lot more sort of girls' teams. But yeah, I I definitely say I I wouldn't change anything in in terms of my participation and being able to play in the games that I have and in the leagues I have. And yeah, it's definitely a memory that I'll cherish forever. What's the difference between playing in the US and the UK? I guess with with the US, it's more, I guess the setups have been a lot more professional for a lot longer. 
So that sort of expectation of what a pro does and I guess the lifestyle and waking up, going to training and that being the, the only thing that you do. I guess in, in the UK, it's always been juggling a, a job and, and maybe your football and now it's only, I guess, a limited amount of teams who are full time. So even where you have that transition where you might have a championship team and a Super League team who play against each other in maybe an FA Cup fixture or something like that, you still see the massive gaps that from playing full-time and being professional and being on the ball every day, that, that sort of difference. And I guess in America, they try to replicate that. Even from the top level down, even like a few leagues down, they still have that professional sort of set up in regards to girls accessing football full-time. So when you were here, you were juggling both, obviously, full-time football career and working at the same time? Yep, all, I I always have, and, and I guess it's it's only quite a new thing with girls being able to actually just play football over the past sort of few years. So again, some of the international players had like central contracts, which I guess their national teams allowed for them to have time to do that extra training, so they wouldn't have to work full time. So they might have a part time job, but they're able to get out and train a lot more because they'll be subsidised from their international teams, and then obviously they'll have their club wage that I guess tops that up. But yeah, so it's literally full-time wasn't really a thing. So that's really why I've always had, I guess, my, my hand in a few other pies and whether that's education or community work, I've always done something else in regards to excelling into leadership for sure. And what's your favourite football team? My favourite football team or the team that I support? Favourite football team? Okay, so my favourite football team is Man United. And to be honest, let me explain. So the reason why, when I was at school, everyone supported Arsenal, everyone supported Liverpool, like they were like the top teams. And again, being the person that I am, I didn't want to follow it. I wanted to be the person that had the argument, the person that was like, that had the banter, like, so I supported Man United. They weren't the cool team back then, but I was like, okay, I'm going to support them and I'm going to have those arguments and fight my case. And then all of a sudden, they were really good. So actually, I had a, a good period of where I could celebrate and where I could boast. But currently, Ollie's at the wheel and we're, we're yeah, we're, suffering. <laughs> we're definitely suffering a bit, for sure. See, long, long may he stay there. I've enjoyed it. I ain't going to lie. So. <laughs> Surely, surely he should have a, a, a too many parking fines and he has to get <laughs> get taken away from behind the wheel. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. And in all the teams that you've played at, you've played with some amazing teams. Mm-hmm. What's been like your favourite one? I've got to say, my, and, and I think most players say this, even like top internationals, the, uh, my favourite team has to be Charlton Athletic. Literally, it was a, a team of players who worked for each other. The cohesion was through the roof and and I guess we were almost always the underdogs just purely because of our names but I think for position to position we could match anyone on any given day and that shows where we've beaten teams like Arsenal we've beaten teams like Fulham when they were fully professional first professional women's team and I guess if you ask any of those sort of household name internationals the likes of Casey Stoney or Farrell Williams etc they will always I guess, say their time at, at Charlton is always one that was super, super memorable. And I think we sort of grew something super special. And it was just really unfortunate at the time that they went into a bit of financial difficulty. And as a result of that, even though the women's team was the most successful team in the club, that was one of the first things they pulled. And it meant that all those top players, all those internationals found themselves without a club and everyone had to 
go and find, go out and find new clubs. And I guess that's where players went to Arsenal, went to Everton and, and moved to other teams within the league. And then I guess they, they signed and they sold Darren Bent, which meant they had an influx of money and said, oh, actually, we, we want to keep the women's team. But by then, they'd already told everyone to go and they'd already signed for other teams. So really disappointing to see the decline of, of the club in that sense from a women's point of view. But as you can see, at, at the minute, you've got players like Karen Hills, who's just taken up that new manager's position back there as the ex-player um, at the time. And yeah, we can see they're in the in the championship at the minute. And yeah, they're working their way up to, to I guess, building back up that profile that they've had for so many years. So it's really good to see. Yeah, it's, um, I love how you break down what made you guys so, so different or made that team so different and the way you were playing for each other, leaning on each other. That's something that is not always talked about, but that's so important in, in those. What made that environment so different than when you compare it to the other teams that were in, in that league at that point in time? I guess naturally with, with other clubs, it, it's sort of fashionable. Everyone knows like the Arsenals and the Nike kit and the, or the Adidas or the sort of the bigger names and, they, and the Chelsea. So they automatically draw themselves to that team. And I guess for us, we almost had to prove ourselves that we were, were good enough in that sense. And I guess time and time again, it meant that our performances done all the talking, not the names on the back of the shirt, not the international teams we played for. It was literally results. And we were someone who who were driven by results and, and we worked hard for each other on and off the field. And I think that's a really unique thing to kind of build with, within a club. And I guess we, we had the right management. We had even down to our sort of, coaching staff our physios our nutritionists like everyone was singing off the same hymn sheet and everyone had that common understanding and yeah just a a rare sort of mix of people from all different walks of life I guess from across not just London but people were traveling in from Birmingham from Doncaster like coming traveling in to play for this club which meant they were willing to drive two and a half hours to come and train it meant that once we got here, we had to make sure we were focused on what it is that we we wanted to do. And yes, we had fun around it as well, but we all knew what the the end goal was and that was to be successful, but not individually. First and foremost, as a team and as a club. And I guess the individual accolades come alongside with that. But yeah, we were really driven to to do things that I guess people say maybe like disadvantaged, but I say we were almost underestimated and we and we loved that and we thrived on it. And we, we we proved each other wrong. We proved the sort of doubt was wrong on the pitch rather than talking talking too much. And I guess having all the sort of media circus around us, we just did what we had to do once that whistle was blown. So that was that was great to see. Whistle goals, you handle your business. You handle your business for sure. <laughs> for sure. One of the um I guess hardest things that any athlete can go through, especially for football players, is injuries and you had two like massive ones and like crucial ligament injuries and you came back for them i was just wondering what was that recovery process like for you yeah i, I guess the, the first one was a lot better than the, the second one the first one is because obviously we were still at a club and as, as i said the team at charlton was fantastic so i mean i was training up until the day i went in to operation and i guess having the right team around me it meant that when i had my op i walked straight out without any crutches because I'd already prepared myself in the best possible way that I could. And then I guess the second one came sort of once just after I, well, just before the club folded. So 
act well not folded but sort of the, the men decided to, to pull the plug and then obviously went back in so it meant that I had to sort of use the rehab and I guess the subject knowledge that I had from my previous injury to sort of go back and, and redo it again and, and I guess for me it's just about how much do you really want it how much do you believe that you can get back to doing what you, you did before you were injured and I guess weighing up the pros and cons as I said I worked outside of football so actually I could have just packed it all in but for me it, it was more about the love of the game and that determination to do something that I loved rather than sort of coming back to, to and sort of prove a point or anything like that it was something that I loved doing it was all, almost my outlet outside of the other work that I was doing working hard whether that was in education or, or coaching etc or, or studying so for me it was just going back to ensuring I had something that I enjoyed and I loved and had that sort of outlet for myself so yeah, the end goal was always to come back and, and continue playing. Now, when you take the, I guess the attitude and approach that you had to to playing sports, and then you look at your career as as a teacher, there's so many different, so many similarities in the way that you've you kind of approached and you took that up. How was that? Um, I guess I'm going to call it transition that you were doing them both at the same time. But how was that playing football and being in the school system for you? Yeah, it, it was it was great. For me, it's it's always about learning, which is super important. Whether that's a, a new subject, whether that's a new role within within education, for me, it's always about how can I continue bettering myself? And at the same time, how do I, I guess, have that common respect? So with my students, I learn from them, they learn from me. There's no one who's, who's more important than the other. And then I guess it, it's about how can I, I guess, work towards being the best version of myself and and how do I continue working towards my why and then how can I help those young people that I guess are looking up to me and also teachers to also be on that same wavelength how can we navigate whatever this system is and how do we work towards I guess what it is that they want to do and and I almost try and reflect a bit on sort of my relationship with education especially if I kind of focus in on on physical education as I said I played football quite an early age so by the time I transitioned into school my sort of physical literacy was a lot higher than my peers so I I really struggled initially in school that actually how come these people are not the the same as good as me like they're the same age they should be good and I really struggled like getting really frustrated and one of my teachers had to sit me down and say you're going to struggle for five years because they're never going to be at the level that you are. So you need to look at how you can adapt what it is you do in this lesson in order for you to enjoy it, number one, but also to continue and progress. So she'd set me specific tasks, maybe like I'd use my weaker hand. I'll only shoot with my weaker hand or I have a time restriction or but I'll set myself my own personal gains or help coaching the others. And I guess that sort of ability to help others transitioned into becoming a teacher. And for me, it was all about how can I get these young people to keep making progress, keep putting one foot in front of the next, keep moving forward, not necessarily being that elite or that high academic achiever, but continuously working towards their why. And I guess having both access and opportunities to, to what that looks like. And I think sometimes we say to young people, you can be anything you want to be in the world, but then we only show them sports, retail and, and something else. Like, where do they get the opportunity to see the other things to say, actually, I don't really like that. Or actually, oh, that might be interesting. I might want to look further into that. So for me, it's about how can I, I guess, help them on that journey as much as I possibly can using my networks to make sure that they get the best out of education as possible. And that's just not education. And a lot, a lot of people think 
the school is education. I mean, from the home, from the community, all these things are married together to make that young person educated. So it's important that we all work together to, to move that young person forward. I must admit, that's not the norm of view of teachers that I've come across in general. When they look at it, it's the kids comes in, do what they're doing and they go out. And you're talking about that whole holistic community kind of aspects where you're looking at all the different elements. And I guess for me, that also goes back into how easily we can attach labels to people. If you're looking at what's it like at home, what's it like in your community, you've gone past those labels. But the reality that we're living right now is it's very easy for teachers to just see oh, that's, that person's, I don't know, disruptive, naughty, difficult, dumb, whatever, and just attach a label to them when it's underlining issues. So how can teachers have more of that approach that you have and start to see and understand and spot things about students? I guess, first and foremost, we need to move away from a, a student being a number. I think it, schools, but schools have become a business now. Um, and everything's done on numbers and tables and, and grades. And I, and I guess it's about looking into maybe even the communities they come from. I think it's really important for us to recognize that when a child arrives to you and you could have up to 30 or sometimes more in, in a classroom, everyone would have gone through different things. Some might have been dropped to school. Some might have independently come on the bus. Some might have had to walk past a blue and white tape that's ha- some, a scene that's happened on their way to school locally. So it's not about judging. It's about having that empathy to understand where it is that child is. But I think you have to know your students. You have to get to know your students, not just their names, but who they are, what excites them, what makes them tick. And I guess it's about how can you then, I guess, teach and nurture around that, but also getting across that subject knowledge, which whatever you teach in the best possible way, and not just looking at it as teaching to pass an exam, but how can you get them to love that subject how do you get them to I guess try different niches that's not going to be asked on that syllabus or in an exam question but it means that they understand it and they get to love that subject for what it is and they maybe want to engage in it in their own personal time as part of enrichment so it's really just about I guess ensuring that you're reflective it's not just you teach and they answer or you teach and they get something done how do you reflect on that and say oh how did that work? Was it great? Could I have done something a little bit different? Maybe if they worked together in a group, we could have got some more ideas. And actually that will make them, I guess, even understand each other's views and I guess speak about other things that come outside of just our subject. So yeah, it's really just looking at how we can collaborate a lot more between teaching in regards to the subject and teaching in regards to actually how can you use that subject in, I guess, everyday life and seeing how they can understand that and how that transitions into not just in a school building, but outside in their environment. You think coming from Wandsworth has made a bigger impact in the way that you see things? Definitely, because I guess for, for most people, I... I'm not supposed to be where I am technically on, on paper. I'm not supposed to be around specific tables because I guess if you look at the, the boxes and, and, and how people are sort of managed in schools and they look at people on school free school meals and people premium and essay, all these sort of tick box things that indicators that say actually this is how well a child should be able to do or doesn't do. For me, I've never really even acknowledge them as a young person but I guess now being on on the dark side as a teacher I get to see like how it it has such so much of an impact and I guess 
for me, it's just about knowing that actually, if I was to even understand that and know that's how people were being judged when I was young, I would definitely not be where I am today. But I think because I'm just kind of like everyone's human and you just keep working hard and you can be whatever you want to be as long as you work towards it and kind of have that positive mindset. I know that actually those labels are neither here or there. It's about how determined you are. It's Sometimes it, it's about your environment and actually sometimes it's the luck of the draw. Like you might get a, a mentor or someone that supports you or someone that helps puts you in, in front of the right person. But I guess it, it's just about hard work and seeing how you can put that together with, I guess, aspirations and see where, where you get. Because if the expectation is low anyway, what what's the worst that can happen? I'm only going to be where you think I'm going to be. And if I'm not, then actually you're a bit surprised in that sense. Speaking about aspirations, you are a local counsellor. That's correct. And and I guess that's an, another sort of unique role because we're the only sort of parish community council in London. There isn't another one. And for me, it's really just about doing what needs to be done locally on the ground. Instead of our precept and our money going to our sort of big central government and they're saying, for example, if it was youth crime or something like that, we've put a poster up that's cost £20,000 to say, stop youth crime. That's how we're trying to prevent it. Actually, that £20,000 could be used for maybe subsidising the the cuts that you've taken from maybe libraries or youth club to actually provide services in a place where young people can actually do things on the ground. So having that, I guess, autonomy and that responsibility to do things that need to be done from a local granular level is is a lot better than it being in a central central pot, for example. So I'll give you a classic example. Our our neighbouring borough, they spent just over £34,000 on hanging baskets, flower baskets, from the diversity and inclusion budget. I don't know how that Wait, not got, got uh, okayed. As in <laughs> flowers, just the pots. The pots that hang on the lamppost at the top. Yeah. Wow, like, what's, what's that got to do with DNI? What's that got to do with anything? <sighs> this, they agreed it. But this, this is the type of things that actually they're happy to put that through. There's people that are homeless. There's people that are using food banks, but they think 35 grand on hanging baskets is going to make a a massive difference. So that's the sort of things that we try and not get involved in, like in stuff like that and actually use our our precept to, to the good, whether that's through local people having the opportunity to sort of apply for a grant to do a love like an idea that they want to do to work with people in the community. Or as I said, working with local schools and youth clubs and I guess like outside open spaces, well-being, all that sorts of stuff. We, we really try and get the sort of voice off the ground and see how we can use the funds necessary to implement the work that needs to be done. So how does that actually work in terms of like funding and even the fact that you're the only, only borough in London that actually has this? Was this something that you intentionally created or how did it come about? Yeah, so, so we had to basically lobby against uh, Central Westminster and get a referendum and get it voted in. And then once we got that done, we had elections like every other normal elections. And I guess our wards split up um, and there's three councillors to each sort of zone of of our Queen's Park ward. So we have 12 councillors altogether and we're apolitical. So there isn't none of that. You're red, you're blue, you're yellow, you're green. There's no time for that. We're too busy for that. We're literally just get things done that needs to be done uh, locally. We're still obviously a, a statutory body. We still do 
all the other regulatory things that, that you do as, as a council. And we've got elections coming up again next year. So yeah, looking forward to to what that looks like. And again, bringing young people, it's about passing that baton on. So we don't want to be there forever. There's other young people that are going to have great ideas and want things to be done. So we really want it to be a, a right cross section of our sort of community. And I think we're definitely one of the most diverse in the country for sure. So yeah, it's great to see young and old, different races, ethnicities, et cetera, genders, all all on the board. So yeah, it's amazing. What difference have you seen that approach actually make to the community, just in in terms of that empowerment and being able to actually do something rather than going through the red tape or dealing with um, politics that tends to happen normally? Yeah, so so I guess for us, there's there's been a, quite a few sort of statutory services that have been cut. So we've been able to support in in some way in, in I guess filling those gaps and I guess supporting accessing funding pots that maybe they wouldn't be able to do, whether that's through our sort of SIL funding or for our normal precept, we've been able to plug those gaps, such as our local youth club, who's Westminster pulled all funding from, and we give a, a yearly grant of. £25,000 and that includes supporting holiday hunger before it was even a thing. We know we're one of the top 10 sort of deprived areas in the United Kingdom. So we know that's an issue. So it's great to see things such as people like Marcus Rashford supporting things such as that. So we're able to, to do that. And I guess with COVID happening, we were able to, we know our residents. So we were able before the sort of central government were able to sort themselves out and organise a helpline and all that sorts of stuff. We already were able to do that centrally using our volunteers as well. So things such as daily meals, prescriptions and all the, all the things that maybe you wouldn't know on, on a bigger grand scale of, I guess, as a borough, as our small constituency, we, we knew a lot of the vulnerable families. Again, we were able to partner with key organisations such as um, the Avenues Youth Project, the, our sort of North and Paddington Food Bank in order to sort of supply up to 100 meals every single day. And I guess having that constant dialogue with those residents to be able to see if their if their circumstances change and how we could I guess offer additional support. But on top of that, we on the flip side, for example, we just had a a local sort of community legend who unfortunately passed away at the age of ninety one, and the number of people that were there to celebrate. Alive, I'm talking five generations of families in attendance. So the poor pastor at the church, he was like, the capacity is 80, but there's nearly 300 people here. He's like, I'm just going to have to roll with it. There's nothing I can really, really do. Like there was people sitting where the choir normally sits because there were no seats. Like literally people sitting at the front of the church on the floor. So to be able to be able to celebrate her life and the family had the sort of after celebration outside the house. And I guess... In most sense, we've seen like over the previous summers, there was like unlicensed music events where people just popped up and had a street party. We were able to, I guess, have those conversations with the police and with the council to say like, this is what's going to happen and give them the sort of heads up that actually there's going to be a large number of people in a specific space and have things such as like the roads, the road closed and stuff like that, when normally it will take a number of weeks to get that sort of paperwork through actually having that community relationship we was able to I guess have that dialogue and sort something out no one expects when when someone's going to pass away but because it was obviously the turnaround was such a short notice we were able because we've got that local community um, engagement and I guess cohesion we were able to have those conversations and navigate those red tapes as you said in order to support what it is that the community needs 
and celebrating people such as uh, Miss Brown who who passed away. Yeah, that is that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Hearing communities come together, supporting each other, and being there for one another like like it used to be way back in the day and that's really really amazing way back so she's that's what i mean she's an absolute icon i mean anyone that can anyone that over the age of 90 that can pull anything up to near like 500 people <laughs> on on a week on a school night tells you that they there must have been like she must have done something really good i mean there were people even from the council who worked for city of westminster that was in attendance of the funeral the local like housing and organization like staff took their like days off to come and attend the funeral so it, it shows you it was a breadth of, of the community and i guess a, a true testament of what community really means and to see that all coming together in a in, in a sort of a great a great manner where it's not i guess like the scenes we've seen over, over the summer where there's sort of a, a interactions with police that are a lot more negative in regards to trying to shut down like events and stuff like that this is a way I guess an example of good practice where it can be done well where I guess they're given the tools to be able to navigate it in a way that maybe they will never be able to understand and break down all that jargon and paperwork that's normally in front where actually we can almost bridge that gap in in a way that's digestible and understandable for the community to engage with for sure. I want to lean into that a little bit more um, because when you first started out, I'm sure that relationship with the police wasn't there in the first place. How did you begin to build that bridge that both of you can really communicate and work cohesively together? Well, the relationship is definitely there. And I think it's more there because there's a need. And again, everything that, that I do is driven by a need. There, there is a need to have a, a good relationship. There is a need within our community for them to understand and I guess have that, that empathy and, and to understand the different paradigms that all these different stakeholders are coming from. And I guess the more we communicate that, the more we demonstrate that, the more they engage on both sides to see what that really looks like the better that relationship is is going to build. And, and I guess I'm not saying that it's the greatest one, um, but it's definitely one that I'm consistently working towards because I know the benefits of how good it could be if we just had that right understanding. Um, but I also understand how bad it, it does get if it's not done right. So for me, it's really, I guess, playing that Benvolio middle person to say, have a look at this, like, Less ha- like, and I'm not saying it's always going to work and it's going to go right, but the way that it is right now across the UK, it's not great. So I'm trying to look at solutions like, let's try this. And we might look at it and say, oh my gosh, those five things were crap, but actually these three things would work really well. Let's keep these and let's try something else. We can't just have it at a point where it's just that loggerheads. So for me, I'm, I'm really just all about finding solutions. Like what, what things do work well? Let me have, it's got to be trial and error. There are going to things be times when they get it completely wrong. Like we always, we've seen on social media, but there's going to be times where they get things right. And I think it's important that we also praise it, praise them when they do do the right things. Um, but I think on the same, on the, on the flip side, that there's also has to be that accountability, accountability piece. Uh, when it does go wrong, you put your hands up and say it hasn't go wrong. And I think, that's sometimes the bit where we're still struggling, where we can see things have glaringly gone wrong, but yet people are still not using their integrity to say, we've got it wrong. 
they're still skimming around it and saying, oh, but no, just, I think you get more respect when you say, I'm wrong and and, and it's not right and it hasn't been done correctly and this is what we're going to do instead of saying, oh, but you have to look at our view and this is why it went wrong. Wrong is wrong and, and right is right. And yeah, I think that's definitely the way to, to push forward. I love that. Speaking of communities, one of the tragic tragedies that happened about four years ago was, was Grenfell, which you've been heavily involved with. Four years on, how is the community, I guess, dealing and healing and coping? Because that trauma still lingers and I'm sure the after effects are still being felt a lot now. I wouldn't really say dealing. I'd say they're managing. And, and I guess that's, that's all they can do at this moment in time. For how long? Who knows? And I guess when we look at things like getting justice, that looks very different for so many different people. For a community member who supported on, on the ground and I guess is also traumatised about what happened, it's different. For a family who's lost five, six members of their family in one go, that justice looks something completely different. For someone who's been warning the local authority about these issues and now having to live through it, their justice is completely different. So I guess for, for, for each individual person and family, it, it's going to be different. But what we do know is that there are clear changes that need to be done. And if we look at even the recommendations that's come out of phase one of the inquiry that still hasn't been implemented, we're looking at how seriously are we taking this? If if we if anyone just sits and spends a day and listens to an inquiry for the day and the witness statements and the accounts, it just shows a complete disregard and, and a clear, I guess, gap in regards to class, accountability, expectation. There's so many different ways or, or routes to look at this. But what what is definitely sure is that people didn't do what they were supposed to do and there has to be some sort of accountability but I think the main thing out of all of this and what everyone wants is change and positive change and not change that we're going to go back and because it's happened again there are clear things that should never happen again and we, we need those things to be sort of put into stone so that no matter what government no matter who's in charge there are no grey areas in regards to expectations so Positive change is definitely the one thing that everyone needs alongside justice. And as I said, that looks different for each and every every person involved. So what are the key things that people can do to, I guess, keep on talking about this and raising the awareness and ensuring that it just doesn't get brushed under the carpet or like we've talked about, I mean, things in phase one, which recommendations have been done about, and there hasn't been any major media coverage about it. Yeah, I guess, as you said, the people that, I guess, hold most powers are are your MPs and the people in Parliament, the people that are making bills and legislations. They're the ones who can make a difference. So I guess it's continuing to put pressure on them to put the necessary recommendations in place. Keep writing to them, keep speaking to them. And I guess, as well, high-profile people who have a platform to, to talk about it, again, to ask those questions. And then hopefully we, we get there because... I guess from a community level, we still make sure that visually what we're calling for change, that we still have the silent walks that take place on the 14th of every month. 
We still have great organisations such as Grenfell United and Justice for Grenfell pushing and putting campaigns together and writing to the relevant people who have the power to make change. So I guess it's about that visibility from if you do have a, a voice or a platform, definitely use it. And don't underestimate like me and you as, as, as individuals and the people who we think don't have a voice because maybe we haven't got a million followers. And I guess it's cliche when they talk about like the impact of one mosquito might be really tiny, but it, it bites you and it, and it has that impact. So it doesn't matter how small you are or how small your following is. It, it's all, always about, I guess, making sure the people that are in charge to have this remit do do the right thing at the minute. So we've seen even with the, the current reshuffle, you've got people such as Michael Gove, who is now sort of heading up things such as housing. And he, he lives quite very close to Grenfell in, in eyesight. So he, he's definitely someone who I'm sure they'll be leading on to, to, I guess, push things through and I guess take up the recommendations from the inquiry. Just thinking about shifting towards some of the other work that you do, your ESP Foundation, for those who don't know what ESP is and what it stands for, can you just explain a bit about that and why you decided to create that? Yeah, so so ESP stands for Education, Sports and Politics. So they're the three main areas that I do, I guess, most of my work in. But aside from that, it's also my initials. So it, it, it just worked hand in hand to sort of put those those things together. And, and for me, it's really just about working with young people, I guess, to navigate those three different fields, as well as doing other sort of community initiative work. And I guess helping them to to excel and, I guess, find their why if it, if it kind of possesses it within any of those three things, but also just giving them the opportunity to experience those different platforms and those different worlds and what does that look like. So different types of education, as I said, inside the school, outside the school, sports, whether that's from a participation level or an elite level, or it could be from even law in sport or physiotherapy or being a a personal trainer on a cruise ship, which allows you to travel and use your mother tongue that no one values in school, but actually is really needed in a, on a specific liner, stuff like that where no one really uh, think about. And I guess politics is more about social action. So not just saying sort of big politics with a big P like being in parliament, but actually it could be from a community level being on a, a sort of community council. It could be from social action of actually rallying some a group at your local church to go on a, I don't know, a climate change matters. How can you ensure that actually your voice is really important and don't underestimate you having those discussions and I guess put, bringing it out on a bigger scale. So yeah, that's what that sort of encompasses altogether. So it's about expanding, I guess, the way that you typically look at some fields. So let's take sports, for example. A lot of times you look at athletes but actually there are a lot of other roles behind the scenes which are just as valuable that other people can go into and allows you to be able to utilise your skill set in that particular way and you can still be involved in something that you love. Exactly. And people, I guess, always see the sort of glossy side of things. Like even if you look at, for example, the England team and all the great adverts and all the promo and stuff, like some, someone has to do that behind the scenes to give you this glossy side. Someone has to make sure that the budget's right. Someone has to just make sure they've got the right content creators. So there's loads of other things that make this glossy thing happen. And, and that doesn't happen unless you have all the other narratives that happen behind the scenes, for sure. And you talk a lot and you do a lot around celebrating um, the youth and the young people in particular. Why is that so important? For me, not only have the young people said that sometimes they feel that they're, they're not celebrated enough and almost they're, 
only celebrated when they've done something or they achieve something or it, it means something to someone else. So a school will celebrate them once they get their GCSEs and be like, well done, you got you got us as the school, these amount of A's and A stars and we're, on, we're high up in the table. But actually for them, the journey is so much more important that that consistency, that resilience, the small things that are making them get towards this this greatness, they, they like to be sort of recognised for it. And I think it's really important that they know that people care I think that's that's super important and actually people want them to do well. People want to support in any way that they can. And sometimes that's not always from their family. So that could be from their mentor. It could be from the receptionist. It could be from the dinner lady that gives them that extra bit of cake because they're seeing that actually they're, they're here on time. It could be that breakfast club that allows them to access one of the most important meals of the day and do some revision in the morning. Like it's always important for us, for them to know that, they are going to be great. They're the next leaders of of tomorrow. Like we are in transition. They're the ones who are going to be driving our country, our, our world forward. So I guess who else to champion them than us? And I think it's always important that what they're looking at in front of them is us as examples. And we have to operate in excellence because we don't know who's watching. And if they see that as the expectation and if we help celebrate them and I guess support them getting to where they think is greatness, where we are, it will just allow them to, I guess, kick on and even exceed that and break those ceilings that we didn't even believe could be broken. And then I guess they'll pass that baton on to the the next generation to continue moving in that forward direction. Is there one example that you can think of that every school can easily adapt that can go into celebrating our children? I I think it's really important not just to celebrate sort of academics I think we, we have to look at just the, the smaller things that that a young person is doing in order to maybe I don't know support one of their peers or it could be in regards to them coming in on time and I guess understanding for that young person they might have had to drop off two siblings in the morning before they've come to us so I think just just recognizing their voice and things that excites them Sometimes we don't engage with things that they're interested in. And I think if we can interact that into a a time and a space where I guess young people get to speak and to debate and bring questions forward, I think that's a a really great time where there's no structure around it. I think sometimes everything's too structured and there's an outcome and a learning need and all that sort of stuff. When actually, when can they get a time to, to just be? How do you get to understand that young person? And yeah, I guess just having that time for dialogue is is really important where there isn't got to be an outcome and there isn't got to be a winner or something to write down or a score it is really good, especially just for, for well-being mentally as well, more, more than anything. And I guess that's why in sports, in a sense, you get that time where you're not sat in a chair. Majority of the time you're sat down somewhere. This is a time where you get to get up and move around and, I guess, be expressive. So, yeah, just being able to express yourself and your views in a different way where there's no real, I guess, academic structure. And I guess that's where you get a lot of the time the beauty of progress in things such as youth work. And the importance of youth workers are so essential in providing that that safe space to grow, to learn, to interact, to create to understand, to learn, to ask questions is super, super important. I think every school should be connected to a youth 
club or youth facility as a sort of a feeder back and forth in order for them to to progress not only in in school but as that as I said that community education and the importance that that community youth club organization could could bring to an educational setting for sure that's actually a really it's a really good idea actually because you might get education at school, but then you get that community aspect, which is foundation, actually. Because a lot of the time, it goes back into, especially young people, they just want to be seen and heard without being in, without being judged. And you want to do that in a space where you have people who can relate to you, can understand you, which sometimes, especially a lot of times in schools, that's necessarily going to come from your teachers. But if you have an outlet that you can go to in youth worker community centers, then that makes that relationship so much more easier. But then with, in a time where we live in where a lot of community centers are being closed down and a lot of funding is being cut from, I guess, youth workers, are there other things that can be done or that you've seen done that could help fill some of that gap, that void that's been created? Open them back up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, we can't be beating around the bush. We can't say, oh, it'll be great if they're here. But they're not. We, what, what, well, we need them to be here. If that's something that's going to have an impact and, and going to help close the gap and is part of the solution, we, we need to open them up. I think there was one, I don't know if it's in East London or North London, I think it was Bruce Grove or something like that. They've just reopened their doors. And I guess and the intake has, has been massive. And we look at it from a even like a school perspective where you have the academy settings where they pull all their money together so that they can have more resources and do things more streamlined. If we look at the example of the sort of legacy youth centre, they do exactly, they use that exactly same model as an, a school academy where they pull all their funding together, which allows when they have this, their youth clubs to have top of the range things like IT suites and climbing walls and all these different things. So if, if it's good enough for a, academic education then it surely it's good enough for them to invest in from a youth or community engagement setting and I'm, I'm quite lucky enough that the youth club that I'm a trustee of the Avenues Youth Project in Westminster has been open for 41 years I've been going there since I was nine before I was even old enough to go there I was going there because my siblings went there and you know how it goes with your parents and you can only go if your little brother goes with you or your little <laughs> sister goes with you so we were all in there like old enough or not old enough and then finally, when I was oh, when I was twelve, and I was actually old enough legally to be in the building, it was like a weight lifted off my shoulder, and I was able to go on trips and do all the other things that all the other kids got to do. Yeah, I've never left. I went from being a, a, a young member to volunteering to working in the summer scheme to to now being a, a trustee on the board. And I mean, like the amount of young people that have gone through there and that they're supporting, and and parents as well. It, it it really is that cornerstone of the community. Like from supporting young people to holiday hunger to your mum needs to print a letter out. Like this is this is where we go and this is where you have that whole sense of, of community and, and that support, not just in, in the school, but it, it's all round. It's all about nurturing that family setting and and you see it with the staff, they come back time and time again, their their kids go there, their grandkids go there. And yeah, that's the type of place where you can have that communication. You see kids who go to school and you can even forewarn schools that actually last night this happened locally. So you might have kids arriving with like stuff they will not be privy to until the problems arrive there. So having that communication and having that relationship is so important. So it's not about reinventing the wheel and trying something different. This works. Fund it. 
make it make it happen. So I think people just need to be, I guess, held more accountable and I guess push for it more. And yeah, don't take no for an answer too easily because we know the benefits that, that it does have. Why don't you just, just take that clip and just create like a little campaign video and just put it out there? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, let's do it. And for someone who's, like I say, you've done so many different things, how do you define leadership? Leadership, as they say, the, the fish rots from the head. So if you're not going to do it, you can't expect other people to do it. You can't be sending them to do things that, that you wouldn't do. And for me, it's just about how do you, I guess, not work, well, working with others. So I'm no higher than the other, but we're working towards, I guess, a a common aim. And when you can allow others to, I guess, flourish and still deliver that high level um, of expectation, when, when you're not even there, when you step back and they can then continue doing that work, I guess that's, that's when your work is done really, because actually you're not having to manage them. They've, they've now obtained those skills and, and feel confident enough to go on and lead. And then I guess for as a leader, then it's about, for me personally, finding a new batch of people that I can support and continue learning from. And I think that's really important that it doesn't matter how, how old you are or how much experience you've got. As a leader, I'm always learning. I'm always looking at what's like what's that new thing like I don't mind being coached by a brand new NQT teacher straight out of uni some people are how come they give like I'm not being coached by them I've been teaching for 25 I'm like but they're going to have something new they're going to see something that you won't see like I'm all for it like literally it's all about how do I continue making progress myself and then how can I pass that on for the next set of leaders and then just continue moving forward that's that's how I define leadership that's a powerful definition, which I love. <laughs> so what is what is next for you with, I mean, you've got football that you're doing, you're part of the FA now, you've got your counselling you're still doing and the charity you're still running, but what's, there's something coming up, I know. So I'm just curious, <laughs> like, like what, what's next? You're, you're trying to get the embargo. I'm trying to, you, you know, know I'm like, come on, like, what's, what's... <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're constantly, ed- education for me is, is the, is the core to everything. For me, it's about, I guess, working towards something that can help, I guess, educate our our young people in an all-rounded way where they really are the focus of what it is that that we do. Unfortunately, I don't think that we're we're at that place right now. So, yeah, that's what I'm working towards, towards something tangible that we can help drive our our next generation of, of leaders forward with in terms of some sort of establishment in bringing that bringing that all together and delivering things that kids are crying out for and that they say that they need and they want from financial literacy to creative arts to mentors to opportunities to collaborate and see new things that yeah that's that's what we're hoping to 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 do so hopefully we we can collaborate with, with the right people who are also passionate about doing these things. And it's not just a tick box. It's not a KPI. It's not as just a CSR. It's something they actually truly believe in. And they have the resources to help, I guess, drive and support this model going forward. So that's that's what I'm working on, on bringing, bringing that into um, existence over the next sort of 
couple of years for sure. I, I like how open yet cryptic <laughs> <laughs> that answer was. We've got to be real. There are really blockers out yeah. there. They are there and we've got to be honest with ourselves. So, yeah, for me, for me, it's just about, as I said, don't tell me, show me. That's one of my, my key sayings. So not saying without saying too much, just, just getting things done and, yeah, seeing where, where it gets us. Yeah, for real. And when more and more things keep on coming out, you, you don't, don't know I'm going to be pushing out. Like, listen, Earth is doing this. Let's get behind it. Let's support it because the work that you are, like I said, the work that you're doing is amazing in the community with children and with in so many different facets. It is all about just driving the narrative and changing the narrative for mm-hmm. those coming up behind us. And you do that in a very selfless way, which is great. It's great to see. And we need more and more people like you who are, who are doing amazing things. But before I leave, my last question, because you are a big trainer fan. What's your favourite pair of trainers? <laughs> you know what? I say the, the one that sort of stands out for me because I just, I just really like them at, at a moment in time were Nike Air Rifts. They don't really make them anymore. Can you remember? Do you know what they are? They're the ones that have got like the toe bits. The toe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so I, 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 prefer some, every single summer, like, yeah, those are the exactly. ones that you rocked. Yeah. I, I, I had a phase of, I mean, like, Colours you don't even want, but just because there's new ones out, like I'd have them like orange, yellow, like patterns, Maharishi, like just different ones that came out. I had them in all colours. So I do like a, a Nike riff and I guess Jordans are Jordans. I'm not really, I guess I, I wear them because, yeah, they look great, but I'm not really, a, oh, I have to go and queue up where I'm going to put my name in that raffle for a, for, for a trainer. Like that's, that's not me, but I do like I do like to cold what I wear, so that's why trainers are a thing. And and actually, I when when Grenfell actually happened, I must have got rid of like so many, like just you know when you just like empty. Everyone was like emptying the house, like all the. I think the only thing that was left, majority, was like the Christmas tree decorations and stuff like that. But literally, like loads of clothes at least 50 pairs of trainers literally like in reacting just just like oh my gosh they're gonna need shoes they're gonna need clothes they're gonna need stuff so yeah uh, quite a large number went during uh during that during that period but yeah it as i said it's it's material things it's it's trainers they can be replaced so yeah i'm not really i just like nice trainers if i see i usually buy the clothes first then if i see a pair of trainers that match something that goes with an outfit I'd buy it but yeah so I usually just have like one top or a couple of tops or whatever that I see goes with a pair of trainers and I'll just buy those trainers and then that's why I'll end up having so much trainers because I've only bought it because of like a couple of tops or one top and then I'm like okay I've got nothing else to wear of it and then it it ends up sitting there for a while so yeah that's that's me <laughs> that also speaks to the, the what we'll talk about later on around that that selflessness as well. Just just giving out. There's a need that people who who have got stuff to, to um, support them with. There you go. Mm-hmm. Where is the the best place people can find out more about you and the work that you do? So the best place would be I'd say my the our website, which is www.espfoundation.co.uk. I'm quite active on Twitter uh, as well. And yeah, I guess they're my, my main places. And LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Earth Upon. I don't do aliases. I don't have 
like you know those fake names that people have and they like they, they give themselves I'm always just like just my name people are like, oh my gosh you just use your name yeah that's that's just me that's who I am so yeah definitely I'd say LinkedIn Twitter and and the website would be with the best places to find me what is the S for it's, that's that's your middle name <laughs> it is for sweetie sweetie Earth so, sweetie pond. So you'll see some of my friends from football, they call me Sweetie, and people are like, oh, why do they call you Sweetie? I'm like, that's that's my name. They're like, nah, it's not. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's So um yeah, apparently when I was when I was born, I was quite sweet, so my parents just threw that one in there. So ESP is for, for, is for sweet. See, look, you're laughing now. See, this, this is the reaction that I get. Do you know what? <laughs> this is how I skipped over it at the beginning. I'm, I was I'm, like, ESP. I'm, I'm I'm going through my head, yeah. Listen to you mash up the boy, them playing football, <laughs> and then you got the sweetie there. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. See, who knew? Two definitions: sweet. It could be like mashing up the boy, them sweet spot, like on the ball. Or there you be, go. You know, see? true that. True make that. Everyone can make it work for for one reason or another. So yeah, Earth a sweetie pond. So you'll see, like, like my friend, like Farrah Williams, who I'm sure you know. The most cat player for England, like she calls me sweetie. She doesn't call me Earth. She would like people are like, oh, why she call you sweetie? She's like, that's her name. I'm, they're like, no, it's not. So you see me get, getting out my driving license and like, yeah, it is my name. Like, oh my gosh, that really is your name. Yeah, it really is my name. So yeah, so like, a lot of my like friends at football and stuff. That's what they. I don't know why they called me by my middle name, but yeah, that's yeah. Why not? I would have thought. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it was even a disguise. Like when they were passing me the ball, they didn't want people to know that I was a per- where the ball was going. So they called me by my middle name instead of my first name. So it's another, I guess, layer of deception in, in that sense. But yeah, that's what it is. Love it. I love it. Appreciate you coming down and just having this conversation. All those places to find you will be in the show notes, and people can tap more and more into the world of Ether Punt. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership. Mm-hmm.